0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by and James. Versailles. So the government is not ruling out coming out of the European Court of Human Rights in response to yesterday's flight to Rwanda not having anyone on it by the end of the evening. Katie, tell us what's going on with that?
2: So last night, I think early evening, it seemed as though this flight would be going ahead, but with a very reduced number of people. So there were seven individuals who were supposed to be on the plane. There had been appeals in the UK courts in the day for four of those people, and they had all failed. Then around seven thirty PM, you had uh, judges in Strasbourg for the EHRC ultimately uh, have their own judgment in the case of one of those men, and they found that there was a case for appeal. That was then used by others who were supposed to be on the plane to say, well, we now have a case for a further appeal," And it led to the government pulling the flight. Um, so it did not take off. Now, I think what's interesting here is clearly it's domination in the news today. But I think you, you would think on paper the government not managing to complete a policy that they've been talking about for some time is bad news for the government. Mm. I don't think it's quite so simple here. It's been clear for weeks now that the government, when it comes to this policy, wants to have a fight. Look at how they responded over the weekend, as we spoke about earlier the week on this podcast, to Prince Charles allegedly saying the policy was appalling. So, you know... you had lots of cabinet ministers, yes, anonymous, lots, you know, but coming out to say, he should butt out, we're doing what voters want to do. Similar with the Church of England. I think that certainly within number 10, there are figures who see opportunities in people being aghast at this policy. Just look at how you know it's been described in SPAD meetings as the ideal wedge issue. Mm. Um, so how does this play into it? I think European judges blocking this policy isn't something that ministers are going to particularly lose sleep over in terms of the optics of that headline. I think they think there's plenty of a win for that. But obviously, more long-term, it creates problems, which is, what does Pretty Patel do now? Do you try and do another expensive flight, which mm-hmm. could get blocked? Do you wait for appeals? Do you do something like... Do you do something such as tear up certain agreements? And so all those things are now buzzing around. And I think that while you can definitely see some of the short-term pros uh which which ministers are talking about privately at least i think there is an issue which is yes pointing out people blocking your policy works and saying that they don't have their own solutions when uh, immigration is such a key voter concern but ultimately if the policy you've come up with fails over a period of six months is there not a risk it's going to start to look as though Maybe your policy doesn't work, even though you can blame others for that. Yeah.
1: So, James, what is the next step to avoid looking incompetent? Are they actually going to leave the um, European Court of Human Rights?
0: No, I think what they'll do is this British Bill of Rights, which is, you know, which they haven't yet introduced a second reading, should hopefully, for the government's point of view, be on the statute book within a year. And what that would do is that would give, because it was a British Bill of Rights, that would give the UK a greater margin of appreciation at the European Court of Human Rights and essentially narrow down the Article 8 claims to a family life, the, the the basis on which people can claim that it would be unfair to remove them, and narrows down Article 6 too. I think the view in government is that that could solve somewhere between, you know, two-thirds and three-quarters of the problem. So, you know, of those people who they were trying to put on the plane would still be able to get on the plane. I think one of the other problems the government has got here is... It has not introduced primary legislation for this policy. It's trying to rely on on previous bits of legislation to say that that this offshore processing or, or sending uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda is justified by these previous laws. Because it is not primary legislation, I think it has I think it has made the courts more inclined to challenge it, because it's not Parliament explicitly saying this is what the law says. So I think these are the things the government will do. I would be surprised if the government left the ECHR entirely for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, uh, the Good Friday Agreement... Acts as a presumption that the um, ECHR applies in Northern Ireland. Secondly, it's in all the devolution settlements. It really would mm. be difficult to untangle. And then I think also this, which is, I know it sounds very trivial, but I think it might actually be quite important. It is worth remembering that Boris Johnson's maternal grandfather was the president of the European Commission of Human Rights. You know, a, a very important figure in the in in the history of uh, of the whole thing. And, and, I, and I just wonder whether he will be prepared to take. That step. So I think they will at the very least, but I think what they will try is to you know, talk about how this British Bill of Rights it, it it is gonna narrow down the basis on which Strasbourg can make these decisions and that will enable them to get more of these people onto these flights. But I think as Casey says, there's a tension for the government, right? I mean, they can see political benefits in having a row over the policy, mm. but you've also got to start sending people to yeah. Rwanda and not just, you know, one person in a in a jet for 250 people once every six months. You know, you've got to start Sending enough people that you can claim that this is actually working as a deterrent.
1: And Katie, Priti Patel made this statement or Rwanda after Prime Minister's questions today, but you were also there for Prime Minister's questions. What was that like? Because Keir Starmer this week has been fending off uh, (laughs) sources in the cabinet, in his shadow cabinet, saying that he's actually just a bit too boring.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty messy Prime Minister's questions all round, uh, lots of criticism coming to both sides. But I think what was most striking about it was how Keir Starmer was really going on the attack. And as you mentioned, he's having a bit of a tricky week. So you had one Shadow Cabinet member an- anonymously uh, saying to the Times that he needs to stop boring everyone to death. <laughs> and then you had Keir Starmer hit back, ultimately urging his Shadow Cabinet not to keep telling the media he's boring and saying that the what's actually really boring is being in opposition. Now, I think looking at today's performance, the comments clearly have got under his skin Mm. because last week there was lots of criticism for Keir Starmer when he didn't really go on the confidence vote, despite it, you know, Mm. happening on the Monday and PMQs on the Wednesday. And lots of people said that was a missed opportunity. And There were also plenty of uh, commentators who said what he should do is, you know, get all the comments of Tory MPs against their own leader and read them out of Prime Minister's questions. Now, belatedly, he appeared to take that advice. He called the Prime Minister um, an ostrich Prime Minister, um, suggesting he had his head buried in the sand in the economy, pointing out Mm -hmm. the recent disappointing growth forecasts. And then started to say, well, look, these are what your own Tory MPs say about you. But where I think he really fell flat and actually scored a bit of an own goal was he used one, which was this briefing note against Boris Johnson, which basically said, you know, he, he is the new Corbyn uh, in terms of his levels of unpopularity. And Kirsten read the sound and said, Prime Minister, I don't think they're saying this as a compliment. But as soon as he said it, I remember James and I looked at each other, we didn't even need to hear what Boris Johnson was going to reply, because I think... Keir Starmer is on tricky territory trying to score points on Jeremy Corbyn Mm. because... Ultimately, he served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet for a decent amount of time. He campaigned to try and get Jeremy Corbyn elected, and when he was running in the Labour leadership, he really leaned into the idea that he was close to Jeremy Corbyn. I think there was, you know, some pictures of them embracing on on leaflets or on the videos, um, come kind of sp- the specifics. And yes, Kishida has since then made, you know, big efforts to try and uh, shake his party of allegations of anti-Semitism, obviously to withdraw the whip from Jeremy Corbyn. But I still don't think he has managed to uh, de-weaponise it to such a point that you can say, oh, you're like Jeremy Corbyn, that man I used to work with and <laughs> appeared to be happy to do so at the time. And then completely predictably, when I mean, there's lots of tricky questions of Boris Johnson on, on things like low growth on uh, mps and criticisms he could just reply and list a handful of things i did and i think it it let boris johnson off the hook and it also showed perhaps the problems for his summer of almost going out of his comfort zone personally i think he should just embrace being quite boring or appearing to be boring mm. to other people you have a situation where boris johnson uh, when people are talking about boris johnson's successor in the tory party i mean for a long period now, the Tory party tends to overcorrect on new leaders. So you went from Theresa May to Boris Johnson. <laughs> we can go further back. So the fact that when you're talking about successes to Boris Johnson, people are trying to go for, you know, almost candidates, or the ones that are in vogue at the moment, the Tory MPs, those with, you know, less personality, not more. Well, actually, if if currently the best hope, I think, for Labour is that the Tories don't get their act together, people think Downing Street is too messy, is it really such a bad thing to have quite a boring lawyer as alternative leader. Mm. I I think we should play into that as opposed to trying to be something you're not.
0: Yeah, I thought one of the other odd things about PMQs was Keir Starman tries to do lots of jokes about kind of Star Wars and Love Island. And I think he would be... I mean, I I think he'd be much better off, as Katie says, going for this kind of reassuringly dull approach. I think, you know... (laughs) And I think you can make that work. If you look at how the states in 2016, Joe Biden essentially said... One of his messages was, you know, if you are fed up with having to think about politics, you know, the fact that Donald Trump made you think about him every day, if you are fed up with that, vote for me. I mean, there is a case, you know, we we have had a lot of trauma in British politics since 2014. And I think that, you know, Keir Starmer basically saying to people, you know, you won't have to think about this every day. I'm just going to make government, government will happen. But I also thought, as Katie said, it was a week late. In terms of what he did mm. and why he went for the Corbyn line I find so bizarre because mm. I still think that it's one of his biggest glass jaws yeah, yeah. which because, because it raises this question of you know what who is he what does he stand for why why was this guy twice in the shadow you know telling people to vote for vote for Labour when that would have made Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister now says that you know now wants to use Corbyn as a kind of insult it, it, it was very it was it was a very very strange decision.
1: Katie and James, thanks very much, and thank you very much for listening. Hope you join us again tomorrow. The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are
0: looking for entries all across the UK. And our closing date is the fourth of July.